One of the beautiful things about John's gospel is that as we read it, we are given insight into the eternal relationship between God the Father and God the Son. The introduction to John's gospel told us the Father and the Son are in the closest relationship. And when we looked at that passage, we saw the words translated closest relationship are actually describing one person leaning back on another. So another way to translate it would be to say the Son is the one who rests close to the Father's heart. And the passage we come to this morning gives us another look at that closest relationship. It comes in the context of opposition to Jesus and unbelief, but it provides wonderful insight for those who do believe. So let's turn to John chapter 10. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1077, or in the larger print Bibles, 1667. John chapter 10. Last week we looked at the first part of this chapter, and there we heard Jesus describe a flock of sheep, sheep that are so vulnerable to predators and abusers, and those sheep represent the people of God. We can be just as dopey as sheep, and we are certainly just as endangered as sheep surrounded by intruders who would like to harm us. But Jesus didn't stop there in the picture he painted. He, having started with the vulnerability of the sheep, he went on to give priceless encouragement for his sheep. Jesus said, I am the gate for the sheep. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will have life and have it to the full. And then Jesus changed the comparison and he said, I am the good shepherd. And we ended last week by noticing that the good shepherd's care for his sheep never ends. The last book of the Bible presents Jesus as the eternal shepherd of his people. Priceless encouragement for those who belong to Jesus. But the first part of John chapter 10 included a reminder that opinion about Jesus was divided. Some people listened to him and they said, he's demon-possessed and raving mad. Others were more open to what Jesus was teaching, which is a good point for you and I to be aware of, because sometimes we are tempted to think, if only Jesus was standing here today. If only he was here in 2022 in London or maybe even in Walsall doing these things and teaching these things. If only people could see and hear him in person, surely they'd all believe. But the fact is when Jesus spoke and taught in Israel, not everyone who was there did believe. It is very possible to meet the truth and not believe it. Even seeing and hearing Jesus in the flesh was no guarantee people would believe. And that reality sets the scene for our passage this morning. We're going to pick up at chapter 10, verse 22, and we'll read to the end of the chapter in verse 42. 
Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered round him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world. Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. This is God's word. The end of John's gospel tells us this book was written that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And the passage we've just read takes us to the heart of those two realities, those two titles of Jesus. This passage gives us insight into what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah and the Son of God. Verse 22 tells us this takes place during the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. And John chooses to point out it was winter. In fact, it was December. That's when this festival was held. It was winter and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. Solomon's colonnade was a sheltered area of the temple. 
And since it was winter, it would make sense that Jesus would choose to go there rather than be out in the open air at that time of year. But if we remember that Solomon was the son of King David, and if we remember the connection from last week between David the Old Testament shepherd and Jesus the Good Shepherd, if we remember that, then we might wonder if John included this little detail about Solomon's colonnade to make sure we keep David and his family in mind as we listen to what comes next. And sure enough, Jesus' opponents go after him about something that has a strong connection with David. Look at verse 24. The Jews who were there gathered round him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Messiah means anointed one. Specifically, God's anointed one. Messiah is a Hebrew word. The Greek form of the word is Christ. And in the Old Testament, David was God's anointed one. He was God's Messiah. God's Christ. David ruled over Israel as king. Part of his role was the role of a political leader. He led Israel in conflict with other nations. And after David's death, there was a sense in which David's son Solomon became the anointed king. We saw that earlier in Psalm 72. But David was the standard and later, when the Old Testament prophets began to speak about a future Messiah, a Messiah who was yet to come, they spoke in terms of a new David who would come. And it seems when the Israelites thought of that future Messiah, they tended to think in mostly political terms. The Messiah they expected was a Messiah who would lead them into battle against their Roman overlords. He would bring a new era of political freedom for Israel. It seems that's what they expected, a political and military leader. And that is why Jesus would not openly declare himself to be the Messiah. Now, he would claim that title for himself in private. He did it in his conversation in chapter 4, for example, with the Samaritan woman by the well. But in public, Jesus did not claim the title of Messiah. In popular thinking, it was just too bound up with political and military expectations. And Jesus' reluctance to use the title is annoying his opponents. Here in verse 24, they're needling him. They're poking him and trying to provoke him to get him to, to declare himself as the Messiah. But look at his response in verse 25. Jesus says, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. What does Jesus mean when he says that? Well, we've just noticed he has not publicly claimed to be the Messiah. So then, what are the works and the words which he thinks testify that he's the Messiah? Well, I would suggest to you, Jesus is referring back to what took place in chapter 9 and the first part of chapter 10. 
In chapter 9, Jesus healed a man born blind. And then, when the leaders of the Jews had humiliated and abused and cast out that man, Jesus came to him and cared for him. Jesus led the man on to a fuller knowledge and a deeper relationship with himself. Then at the beginning of chapter 10, Jesus pictured himself. He described himself as the good shepherd. The one who protects and provides for God's people. Like a shepherd does his sheep. And so here, when Jesus says, I did tell you I'm the Messiah, and the works I do testify to it, I think the point is, what I did for the man born blind... What I said about being the good shepherd, that is plenty of evidence that I'm the Messiah. Jesus is challenging their expectations of the Messiah. They want a political military leader, but Jesus says you ought to be looking for a good shepherd. And this is not a new idea. We've noticed that David was God's Messiah in the Old Testament. And what did David do? He was a shepherd who became the king of Israel. He was the shepherd king. That's what God's Messiah is like. Yes, he will have battles to fight, but at heart, God's Messiah is a shepherd who cares for his flock. And in this, the Messiah is at one with the Father who sent him. Look at verse 26. Jesus says to these opponents who've gathered round him, You do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. When Jesus says in verse 26, you don't believe because you're not my sheep, he's not excusing their unbelief. He's not saying, poor you, you can't help it. Nor is Jesus saying the case is closed for everyone he's speaking to here. And they never can believe. He's not saying that at all. As the passage goes on, we'll see Jesus is urging them to believe. But the fact remains their unbelief is not surprising. Not everyone belongs to God's flock. But the key point Jesus makes here is the security of those who do belong to the flock. They are doubly held. Held by both the Father and his Messiah. At the end of verse 28, Jesus says, no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. And in verse 29, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. They are one in their commitment to the preservation of their flock, the people of God. One writer says, No power in the world 
can break the bond between this shepherd and his sheep. And as if that wasn't enough security, behind the strong hand of God's Messiah is the strong hand of the Father who sent him. Every sheep in the flock, every child of God, is held secure by the limitless power of heaven. And so who could steal you when you're held secure by that limitless power? What intruder could find a way past that powerful protection? What deceiver could outwit such divine defenders? And so if you wonder, what does it mean for Jesus and his Father to be in the closest relationship, here is part of what it means. It means they are one in their commitment to preserving every single sheep in their flock. And that includes you. God's people are doubly held secure by the Father and Jesus, his Messiah. The Father did not send his Messiah away on a mission while the Father got on with his own thing. Saving and preserving God's people is their joint mission. They are equally committed to it. If you belong to Jesus, you are doubly held. And that means you are unassailably secure. You will never perish. No power in earth or hell or sky can break the bond between God and his people. Or in the words of the Apostle Paul, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can break the bond between God and his people. The flock who are doubly held by the Father and Jesus his Messiah. We all love that beautiful song, In Christ Alone. It is a beautiful song and it's a perfectly wonderful and true song. But when we get to the part that says about Jesus, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. As we sing that, we might want to remember our security is even more profound than that. With John chapter 10 in mind, we might want to give thanks that we are jointly held by Christ and the Father. And so we might sing, no power can ever pluck me from their hands. If you know any songwriters, if you ever bump into Matt Redmond or Keith Getty, tell them we need some songs that help us give thanks for the joint work of Christ and the Father. Because when it comes to holding God's people secure, the Father and his Messiah are in the closest relationship. Well, here in Jerusalem, Jesus' opponents understand very well the implication of all this. 
They understand that he's claiming to be God, and they pick up stones to stone him for blasphemy. But instead of backing away from what he's just been saying, Jesus extends it to make the point that all the works of Jesus the Son make his Father known. The closest relationship between the Father and the Son is not limited to holding God's people secure. Their close relationship extends to everything the Son does. Look how Jesus explains this. In verse 33, the people with stones in their hands explain, we're going to stone you for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Remember, these people are Jews. They are committed to belief in one God. One God who is in heaven. As far as they're concerned, Jesus is claiming to be a rival God. They cannot conceive of the possibility that the one God would be a multi-person God. That there could be a God the Father in heaven and a God the Son standing before them on earth as a man. That explodes their understanding of God and their categories for God. And we haven't even introduced the Holy Spirit into the conversation yet. Later in John's Gospel, Jesus will have plenty to say about the third member of the Trinity. But for now, even one God in two persons fries the brains of these Jews who worship the God revealed in the Old Testament Scriptures. As far as they're concerned, a man who claims to be God must be a blasphemer. And so, Jesus quotes their Old Testament scriptures to show that rather than stoning him, these people need to pay attention to what their scriptures tell them about God. They need to let those scriptures widen their understanding of God. That's what Jesus is doing, but the scripture he chooses seems initially very puzzling, I think. Look down at verse 34. In response to their accusation of blasphemy, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me, accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? What on earth is this about? Well, Jesus is quoting here from Psalm 82, just one part of a verse from that psalm. I have said you are God's. It's not even a full sentence in the psalm. And if we were to turn to Psalm 82 and read it, we would find it consists of God, capital G, rebuking the gods, small g, for their evil behavior. And it is a specific kind of evil behavior. They've been given the mission of representing God, but they are misrepresenting him. 
So God says to them in Psalm 82, in the earlier part of the psalm, you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked. That's what they are doing. But here's what they ought to be doing. They should defend the weak and the fatherless. They should uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. They should rescue the weak and the needy and deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Well, who are the gods, small g, that God, capital G, is talking to in Psalm 82? If you read commentators on the psalm, you will find two main opinions about that question. Some people will argue they are spiritual beings God is addressing. They're what the New Testament calls spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. Others will argue that God is speaking to human rulers in the psalm. And those alternatives are certainly very interesting and they're worth thinking about. But here's the thing. Whoever we decide God is talking to in Psalm 82, it makes no real difference to the point Jesus is making here in John chapter 10. In Psalm 82, whether God is addressing spiritual powers or human rulers, the point of the psalm is they're supposed to be representing him. That is the mission God has given them. That's why they're called gods. It's not because they're rival deities. That's impossible. The one true God has no rivals. Whoever God is speaking to in the psalm, they are called gods because they are to be godly. By displaying God's character accurately as they defend the weak and the fatherless, as they uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed, as they rescue the weak and the needy and deliver them from the hand of the wicked. That's what the figures in Psalm 82 ought to be doing. That would be godly. That would accurately display the character of the one true God. But instead, these characters are defending the unjust, they're showing partiality to the wicked. And that is not godly at all. Instead of representing God, they are misrepresenting him. And so as Psalm 82 goes on, God pronounces judgment on those individuals. And why does Jesus quote that Old Testament psalm here in John chapter 10? He quotes that psalm simply to make the point that the one true God is a God who desires to communicate his character to this world. He wants to share himself with people. And he has chosen to do that through the works of others. The one true God is a God who works to display his godliness through others. But the reality is no individual in the Old Testament did truly display the godliness of God. Adam and Eve didn't. Abraham didn't. 
Solomon didn't. Even David didn't. None of them displayed God's character in a consistent and clear way. And no group of people truly displayed God's godliness either. Not Israel, nor any of the other nations. But those failures did not change the fact God wants to share himself. He wants to display his godliness in this world. That is his desire. And so he sent his son. Who the New Testament describes as the radiance of God's glory. And the exact representation of his being. The one in whom dwells all the fullness of God. Jesus is the only truly godly one. He's no rival to his father. He's the one who truly makes his father known. And so here in verse 36, Jesus can say, if the Old Testament shows us God's desire to make himself known through the works of others, if he can give others that mission and even call them gods, small g, then it is no great surprise that after the failure of those representatives, God the Son would come. The one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world. Because Jesus shares equally in the divinity of his Father, all his works make his Father known. Not just his care for God's flock, God's people, but all that he does. All of it displays the grace and truth and justice and majesty and goodness of God. So then if you want to see God, look at Jesus. That's been the message of John's gospel since chapter 1. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So here in our passage in verse 38, Jesus says, my words haven't convinced you. So look at my works. Don't they display the greatness and majesty of God as I heal the sick? Don't my works display the love and compassion of God as I embrace the outcast and the unclean? Can you see, can you deny when you look at my works and my life? Can you deny that it makes God known, Jesus says? At the end of verse 38, can you deny that the Father is in me and I in the Father? And surely you and I cannot deny that. Surely when you and I look at Jesus, we see a man, yes, but more than just a man. Don't we see 
the saving, keeping power of God the Father displayed in the person of His beloved Son? When we look at Jesus, don't we see God being made known to us in a way that no mere human could ever make Him known? Don't we see God become flesh? At the end of John chapter 10, those listening to Jesus in Jerusalem refuse to see what's there in front of them. And Jesus leaves the city. Earlier in this chapter, John pointed out that it was winter. And now Jesus leaves Jerusalem to its cold unbelief. He crosses over the Jordan River, and there he finds many who do come and believe. These people, we're told, had previously heard the witness of John the Baptist. At this point, John the Baptist is dead. He had been executed sometime before this by King Herod. But while he was alive, John had given a clear witness about Jesus. And now, when these people meet Jesus, they say in verse 41, all that John said about this man was true. What a great tribute to any preacher. In fact, what a great tribute to anyone who seeks to bear witness to Jesus. What better commendation could we wish for than to hear someone say, all you told me about Jesus was true. And when you and I come and listen to the witness of Scripture... And then come to Jesus as we get to know him better, as we experience more of his care and his keeping power, aren't we able to say all that scripture told me was true? Jesus is the son who makes the father known. He is the Messiah. The good shepherd who along with his father holds me securely. And loves me with a love that will never let me go. Even in dark valleys and evil days. All that scripture told me is true. If you're facing challenges and difficulties. Trust Jesus in the midst of those challenges and difficulties. Follow him through them. And you will discover he is all the Bible says about him. Everything scripture tells you about him is true. And now as we respond to this together, we want to respond to both the Father and the Son. We want to acknowledge in our praise this closest relationship that does us eternal good. We want to give thanks that together they hold us and keep us. So our first song focuses on the Father's care. Then our last song speaks of the Son's work to hold us fast. But let's sing both of these remembering the double commitment that lies behind these truths. 
I bow before the God of matchless care, and then he will hold me fast.
peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.